History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge, find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the HHE studio with the candle to my cake. It's Mr. Peter Goddard! I've always thought of myself as more of a church candle and those big stocky ones that plonked on top of your cake. Yeah, well, I just see it as you always getting on my wick. Hey! <laughs> so, Peter, here we are. It's our 50th episode. We've done hours and hours of History Happened Everywhere. I am super excited to celebrate our 50th. And the Dursleiter has helped us in that journey. It has given us 50 in the 50s, in the 50th country, in Europe, alphabetically. And what is the 50th country alphabetically in Europe? The United Kingdom. Now, I'm going to be totally honest with the listeners and say that we were rather planning on a nice European jaunt <laughs> when we did this, and we actually had no idea that it was going to be the UK, so we've yeah. cheated ourselves out of an international holiday here. However, it is four countries rather than one. That's right, Ryan, and we're not just going to talk about four countries, we're going to visit all four countries. What, like, actually go and see them? That's right, pack up your pants, Ryan, we are going to visit English men cracking codes, Scottish women saving lives, Irish distillers, and Welsh bankers, all in a single Unbilled 50th episode special. Passport ready, suitcase packed, I'm good to go. Let's do it. So, the United Kingdom, Ryan, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the country. The United Kingdom? The no, United never heard of it. Well, you, you may have a look, at, look out of the window there, that's a bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> So, formerly the UK is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But also Great Britain is used to mean the United Kingdom as well, casually, and GB is used for the United Kingdom as well. So it's, Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around that, isn't there? Yeah, and it's, it's used sufficiently broadly that it can mean any of them, so you just kind of need to know your context. But what is absolutely clear is there are four nations within the nation, which is England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. Mm. All told, adds up to 65 million people. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, there's only 2 million less than France. Okay. And area-wise, it's less than half of France. So this week, Ryan, we are going to visit all four countries. Yes. We're going on a road trip. All right. But what are we going to look at? The topic is 50. How does that fit into all of this? Well, I've decided we are going to study the topic of 50 and the period of the 50s through the medium of the 50-pound note. Have you ever seen a 50-pound note, Ryan? I mean, I'm sure someone showed me one once. <laughs> I saw it in passing in someone else's wallet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, we are going to go on a road trip. We're going to visit all of the countries of the United Kingdom. And we're going to learn about some of the people and the places that you can see on £50 notes that are currently in circulation in the UK. £50 notes, so there's more than one. Notes. Yes, there are a number of people who can issue notes. And we'll learn a little bit about that as well. All right. So we are here in the studio. We're about to set off. You've packed your bags. You know roughly where we're going, but you don't, I don't think, know the details unless anyone has leaked to you my plans. Nope, not at all. So our first country within a country is England, because here we are. It's rather easy to start where you're sitting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, England is the bottom right bit of the country. It's actually 130,000 square kilometres, so quarter of a France, with a population of 56.3 million people. So 84% of the United Kingdom's population are in England. That's what? a lot, isn't it? Yeah, it's part of the reason why it tends to dominate the, the United Kingdom in various factors. Mm. The Bank of England is the issuing body for banknotes and has been issuing notes since 1694. And in 1921, it gained a legal monopoly on the issue of banknotes in England and Wales. But not 
Scotland and Northern Ireland. Okay. So uh, we'll start with an, a Bank of England banknote then. And um, we'll learn a bit more about the Scottish and Northern Irish banknotes a little bit later. But since 1928, you need to know that it's been illegal to deface a banknote under the Currency and Banknotes Act in 1928. Mm-hmm. So if you were thinking of, well, assuming you had a 50 pound note, <laughs> yeah. you were thinking of scrawling on it, do not do that. You'll be committing a crime. Okay. But we're not going to deface anything. We're going to just visit the places. Okay. So a Bank of England £50 note is a big red note. The paper notes are actually going out of circulation this year in uh, 30th of September. And they're going to turn oh. into the polymer plastic coins. <laughs> no, no, plastic notes. Okay, uh, I've seen those. You can't rip them, right? They are much harder to rip. They're much more durable. They last apparently them. two and a half times longer than a regular banknote. Okay. Uh, and they're also harder to forge by all accounts. Hmm. But don't worry, when they're withdrawn, the Bank of England will... Always exchange any valid note, even if it hasn't been a currency in circulation for however many years, it will always exchange for a current currency if you wanted it to. So if I find a banknote from 1699... You could take it to the bank and they would exchange it for a, a new, shiny new note. Yeah. Probably not the best value for money for you, but you might get a bit more on eBay for a note of that uh, age and rarity. But uh, nevertheless, the bank, it, it would exchange it for you. Okay. They print the banknotes in Essex in a company called De La Rue, and they produce 5 million banknotes a day. It must be weird. You must get desensitized in some ways to money because you see millions of pounds sure. pass beneath your eyes, and yet you still need bus fare on the way home. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, there was a new note issued on the 23rd of June, 2021, and the 23rd of June is the birthday of one Alan Turing. Oh, okay. So Alan Turing was a mathematician, yep. uh, and he did some of his work at Bletchley Park, which you may have heard of. I have. a code-breaking facility in World War Yep. And so that is going to be the first stop on our road trip. So, Ryan, pack your bags. We're headed off. Let's go. So we've come to Bletchley Park in Bletchley, which is 50 miles outside of London. Yep. Uh, And this is where Alan Turing did a lot of his most successful and most notable work. Alan Turing was called Alan Matheson Turing, which is a great name for a man who became a mathematician. That's pretty good. Uh, he was born in 1912. He was a mathematician, a computer scientist, a logician, a cryptanalyst, a philosopher, and a theoretical biologist. That's a lot of things. He is a man of many talents. Like, do you get paid for each of those things? I think you do one at a time and get paid for each as you go. Okay. <laughs> but he's mostly known as one of the fathers of computing, particularly. Okay. Computers. Uh, so he did a degree in maths from Cambridge and then a PhD in Princeton. So that gives you a rough idea of how smart he was. Wow. <laughs> and then during the Second World War, Alan Turing worked for the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, where we sit today. Uh, this is kind of a stately home about 50 miles north of London. And he led the work of Hut 8. So the work of Bletchley Park was divided into various temporary huts, basically small, supposedly temporary buildings. And Hut 8 was one of them. I wonder if that was because you wanted to maintain a level of secrecy as well. Those people within that hut, you were mixing with other people. super, super secret as well. So you would sign this official secret act and everything. You you couldn't tell your family what you were doing. It was very hush-hush. And they, the people in Hut 8 basically were devising techniques to break German ciphers. What's a cipher? So a uh, code. So okay. instead of saying, I'm going to attack on Tuesday, I write numbers and letters that are decrypted into the code that you're going to attack on Tuesday. Okay. So knowing what the enemy is doing was very important. And uh, the enemy had a code machine called an Enigma machine. Right. Uh, and that meant there were millions of combinations of how the letters may be transposed. So you press a button that's an E on your machine and it transposes it to an X and only someone with the decrypting machine would go, ah, oh, this X should be an E, basically. Oh, okay. So I get a piece of paper with your code on it, X, D, 
Z3 or whatever, I type that into the machine and it tells me, let's meet on Tuesday. Exactly. All right, cool. He didn't invent this from scratch. There was a Polish method of this decrypting. And what Turing did was he developed an electromechanical machine called the BOMB, B-O-M-B-E. So this is kind of your pre-computer. Basically, uh, there were machines which could make loads and loads of calculations really quickly to then find sensible decryptions of words so you could break the code. Okay, because the alternative is sitting there with a pen and paper, right? Which they also had people with pens and papers, and there's kind of techniques to decryption which you can use. So you know, for instance, in English, E is the most common letter of the alphabet, so you look for the most common letter in a sheet of text, and if it's X, then you think X might well be E in normal decryption. There's more to it than that, but that's the kind of thing you're doing. It was a really critical piece of the, the war effort, actually. And in actual fact, when Alan Turing and his men felt they needed more people and more materials to make these machines they were decrypting with, they actually wrote directly to Winston Churchill on the 28th of October, 1941, saying we need more stuff and people. Churchill wrote a memo and it says this, action this day, make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this has been done. <laughs> so, that's how important it was at the very top. Everyone knew that this was really critical to That's the effort. That's awesome. I'd throw in some extra just, you know, for snacks. <laughs> like, that if it's that important. Cake. <laughs> it's really important. So overall, the Hut 8 and Alan Turing in particular played a great part in decoding German messages, which was critical to the war effort, which obviously we won, I think it's fair to say. And Hugh Alexander, who became the leader of Hut 8, said there should be no question in anyone's mind that Turing's work was the biggest factor in Hut 8's success. Wow, that's fantastic. So question, was there just one Enigma machine or was there lots of, did everyone have their own personal Enigma machine in Hut 8? There were a number, so the Enigma machine was the coding and decoding machine, so it was a German machine. Oh, so what we had was a machine that decoded the oh, messages see. as they came in. Okay, so did but everyone have a number of Enigma one? machines? One of the one of the things that helped the decryption of the Enigma code, which was thought to be unbreakable, was they actually captured one of the machines themselves. So there were a number of machines that people would use to to code and decode wow. messages, and they got hold of one of the machines, and that really helped with the. Effort. Well, yeah, it would do. That's <laughs> literally the answers to your exam the next day. Uh, there was only one of the machines. <laughs> oh, because there were other machines. Because there's also the the Enigma machine was quite complicated. It had um, these roller things, and you could put them in different orders. Mm. So you not only had the machine itself, but you needed to have the bits of the machine assembled in the right order to get the code of the day. It's complicated, isn't it? It's is a very complicated business, which is why they created a big machine that could crunch through hundreds and thousands and millions of of variables to come up with a decoding effort. And just to be clear, right, this isn't just transcribing codes just for fun, right? This isn't a competition. This is people's lives on the line. This is the success or failure of the war effort. In large part, it came down to this. Information in war is obviously almost as valuable as tanks. So I think we should go and have a look at Hut 8. We're here. We can go and look at the actual hut where all this activity took place. I'm up for it. All right, let's check it out. Let's go see a hut. Okay, so now we're outside Hut 8. This is the hut that Alan Turing was at first in charge of and eventually Hugh Alexander took charge of, but Alan was uh, there throughout. Unfortunately for Alan, he wasn't able to talk about his work on the code breaking. It was all top secret stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. So he uh, ended the war and as with everybody else at Bletchley Park, they went on their way and 
kind of didn't speak about it after that and didn't get the hero's welcome that you would hope they they really deserved but it's not something you can write a biography about really is it no it didn't didn't give you a lot of oxygen but that was not the end of alan turing by any means he after the war he worked at the national physical laboratory and in 1948 he went to join the victoria university of manchester uh, where he helped develop manchester computers which are very early computers as a part of a team led by tom kilburn but turing also his name lives on more generally in something you may have heard of called the turing test yeah the turing test the Turing test. That, let me guess. Isn't that to do with robots? Very much so. Androids or something. Artificial intelligence. Oh, AI, that's right. So in 1950, he wrote an article called Computing Machinery and Intelligence, which is a paper on the topic of artificial intelligence. And it asked the question, can a machine think? But he wrote it, he immediately realised we struggle to define what we mean by think which is understandable. It's quite an a, a amorphous topic. Yeah. But also he struggled it's to understand... philosophical question, that one, isn't it? Well, absolutely. And it gets worse because he also struggled to define machine. Is a clone of a person a machine or is it something Ooh, else? Ooh, okay. So, I mean, the words can and uh seem to be okay. <laughs> yeah. But instead of worrying about all of these, Turing in this paper rephrased it as, can a computer win this game? So the idea of this game is there are three players in different rooms with just a terminal in front of them. The first player is a human being. The second player is a computer, an artificial intelligence. Yeah. And the third player is a human judge. And that judge is allowed to type questions to each of the players and read their answers. And then the judge has to understand and guess which one is the computer and which one is the human being. Okay. So they can't see each other. And they can't see each other. Right. So just by the, res the questions and responses. So the notion is that you do away with trying to define thinking and define machine. And you say, can a, a human judge tell the difference between a human and a computer? So basically, where it gets to the point where you can't distinguish between a human and an AI is the point where you've passed the test. And you can be said to be thinking at that point. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, cool. So that was one of his most famous papers in the 1950s, in 1950 specifically. Uh, he also wrote papers on mathematical biology into the 1960s, which is an interesting concept, which is uh, about using mathematical models to define what might be happening in the sort of structural aspects of biological mechanisms. But throughout this, he was never really recognised, even even with the, the 1950 paper, partly because the, the things he did during the war were things he couldn't talk about. But it was much worse than that for Alan. In 1952, Alan Turing was prosecuted for homosexual acts. And this happened when he admitted to having a male partner when he was reporting having been burgled. So he went to the police for help mm -hmm. having been burgled. And because of his report entailed mentioning that he had a male partner, he got prosecuted for wow. being a gay man. He avoided prison by accepting hormone treatment, also known as chemical castration. But, you know, that is not how one would hope we would treat our heroes. And it gets worse for him as well. In, on the 7th of June 1954, just 16 days before his 42nd birthday, his housekeeper found him at his home dead from cyanide poisoning. Well, he killed himself. Well, there was an inquest that determined it was suicide. And uh, there's one school of thought that says he put poison in an apple. This also gave rise to a theory that you may have heard of, but that the Apple logo is a kind of tribute to Alan Turing. Oh, really? With the bite taken out it. Taken. Now, they say it isn't, but uh, I quite like to think it's, however inadvertently, a little tribute to one of the fathers of computing. Yeah, but there is wonderful. another theory that actually it was an accidental death and he didn't kill himself at all. It seems odd that you might poison yourself accidentally, but apparently he had an electroplating apparatus set up in his room, which uses potassium cyanide to dissolve gold for then plating that gold onto metals, I guess you do it. Potentially possible that the fumes from that could have killed him. But then there's a third theory that he actually brought the apparatus in to give his mum some plausible deniability about having killed himself. In any event, he dies tragically early. And it's essentially a very unhappy ending for a man who hadn't been recognised in his lifetime. But there is a happier postscript. Uh, in 2009, there was a petition with more than 30,000 signatures, and that led to Gordon Brown, 
British Prime Minister at the time, to make an official public apology for the way Alan Turing was treated. No way, really? Yeah. The Prime Minister? The Prime Minister. And it was very much a proper apology. We are very sorry, not wow. a weaselly politician's apology <laughs> like they used to. How many years after? Uh, this was in 2009, so he died in 54. Uh, 45 years later. Yeah, slow slow coming, but it came in the end. And in 2013, the Queen granted Alan Turing a posthumous pardon for his prosecution for homosexuality. Didn't feel like throwing in a knighthood? You'd think he deserves a little more than that. He did get an OBE during his lifetime. Okay. Um, but also, finally, and this is uh, this is quite sweet, in 2017, there was a new law in the UK that retroactively pardoned men in general after their historical convictions or cautions for homosexual acts. Yeah. And this has become informally known as the Alan Turing Law. So not only is there a Turing test, there's a Turing law. So I think the lad did okay in the end. Yeah. So that's Alan Turing, the hero of the Bank of England, 50 pound note. And I think we should have a toast to Mr. Turing. This is the Bletchley Park beer we're sampling here. Let's give it a go. It's an enigma. So cheers to you, the audience. Cheers to you, Alan Turing. Uh, now let's go, Ryan. We've got more to do. All right. We're going to head north to Scotland to see what we find there. All right. Don't do that when we get there. Okay, look. Okay, welcome to Scotland, Ryan. Before we move on, uh, I would like to get you in the mood for things Scottish with some Scottish products. Uh, a couple of little bits for you. Uh, would you like to describe what you're seeing here? We have, uh, well, what looks like a snack of some kind. It's a silver foil wrapped dome, which has tunnocks, milk chocolate mallow written on it. And then we have a can of, of Fizzy Pop, Iron Brew 1901. That is correct. That 1901 is a kind of historic version of the popular soft drink Iron Brew. So these are two classic Scottish products. The Tunnock's Tea Cake and Iron Brew. So the, the tea cake started in 1890 when Thomas Tunnock decided not to go in the family business. His father was actually a coffin maker and he became a baker instead. He invested £80 of his own money to open his bakery. By 1906, he employed six boys, which sounds suspicious, but they were delivering his wares around the village, I guess. This was a, just a bakery at that time. But the tea cake that we know today, which is this chocolate coated mallow thing, in 1956, Boyd Tunnock, who was the grandson of Thomas, he developed the idea of Italian meringue on a cake with a chocolate coating. And the Tunnock tea cake was born. And celebrity fans of the treat include Coldplay's Chris Martin. Oh, it's all yellow then, is it? <laughs> no, it's white, but let's have a little go. You unwrap that and have a bite and tell us what you see. Oh my goodness. So there's a kind of marshmallow dome in a chocolate with a chocolate coating and a little bit of, is that biscuit or cake on the bottom? Yes. Okay, that's biscuit or cake on the bottom, confirmed. <laughs> so you might need something to wash that down. So let's move on to the Iron Brew. Now, Iron Brew was introduced in 1901 by a company called Bar. Although similar drinks were invented in New York before, so much like Coca-Cola is a brand of cola, the cola drink, so the Iron Brew flavour isn't necessarily originated in Scotland. But the Iron Brew brand has become almost symbolic of Scotland, the second national drink, they say, second to whiskey, as you may guess. And it is the most popular soft drink in the nation, so much so that they even have their own tartan. Their own? tartan that's cool i bet it's orange because this is an orange orange can it certainly is let's have a look oh my god it's gone everywhere <laughs> okay yeah we'll, we'll clean that up later <laughs> just for the listeners all over my bed <laughs> oh that's somewhat medicinal sweet light actually that's like a refreshing sodery pop. There you go. And that orange colour that the drink is inspired the slogan made in Scotland from girders. Some sense of delicious rusty water. You may also get diabetes. But anyway, there we go. Some Scottish snacks. And let's learn a little bit about Scotland while we're here. 
So, Scotland is on the north bit of the main island. It's 77,933 kilometres squared, which is one-seventh of a France. That's actually quite big, isn't it? Like, I, I thought it would be much smaller than that. Yeah, I mean, it's the second, I think it's the second largest nation in the United Kingdom. Uh, but it's only got five and a half million people. That's tiny. It has its own language. Scots Gaelic is a language. But unlike other nations we'll be discovering, it's not quite as endemic and everywhere and shared signposts with multiple languages. Everything up here that we've seen is in English. English. But Scottish banknotes, which we're here to talk about in a way, unusual because they're issued by retail banks, not a government central bank. And that means they are, interestingly, not defined as legal tender. Wait, what? Well, here's the thing about legal tender. It's quite complicated, but we'll try and get through it. So here's the thing. English banknotes aren't legal tender in Scotland either. Scottish notes aren't legal tender in England or in Scotland. And debit cards, checks and contactless payments that we do aren't legal tender anywhere. One and two P coins do count as legal tender, but only up to the amount of 20 pence. And basically what this means is legal tender has a very narrow definition. It's a technical meaning. And it means if you offer to fully pay off a debt to someone in legal tender, they can't sue you for failing to repay them. So what this means is if you've already incurred a debt, if I owe you £20 and offer to pay you in 20 English pounds in England, which are legal tender, you have the choice to either accept or reject. But if you don't take that money, you can't then come after me for the debt because I've offered you valid payment for that debt. So if I haven't borrowed money from you or if I want to buy something from you, we haven't transacted. I don't owe you anything yet. So you can say, no, I don't care whether it's a five pound, 500 pennies. I don't want to take it. So, yeah, basically, it's if you already have a debt, you can pay it with legal tender and the other guy can't refuse. But they can refuse to take your money in a a transaction that hasn't taken place yet. Uh, Now, to make it even more confusing, there are three banks that are allowed to print Scottish notes. The Royal Bank of Scotland, the Bank of Scotland, even more confusing, and the Clydesdale Bank. And all three banks, fortunately, have conspired to use the same colour for the various denominations. But we're going to look at a couple of these in in the next couple of visits and visit some locations around Edinburgh. Ooh, okay. What, so like the imagery on the back of the notes? Exactly. We've got some pictures of people and we're going to look at the places associated with those people. Great. I'm excited. Let's go! Okay, Ryan, I've brought you to 219 High Street, Edinburgh. Yeah, why is that? Uh, that is because if you look at the Clydesdale Bank version of the £50 note, yeah. you will see it features somebody called Elsie Inglis. And if you look up there... Oh, there's a little plaque. And what does it say? Oh, it says Elsie Inglis. There you go. Oh, that's a coincidence. Uh, not quite. That's why we're here. <laughs> Dr. Elsie Inglis was born in India and she came back to Scotland to be educated in Edinburgh. And then she went to Paris for finishing school. And then she came back to Edinburgh where she studied at the Edinburgh School of Medicine for Women, where Elsie was one of the first students. In 1892, she obtained what's known as the Triple Qualification. That's the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, and the Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. So, quite the doctor. Yeah, really. She wasn't happy with the way women's health was taken care of, so she travelled around learning a bit. She went to a women's hospital in London, then she went to a maternity hospital called the Rotunda in Dublin. Then she came back to Edinburgh, and in 1894, she teamed up with Dr. Jessie McLaren-McGregor, who was also a student of the Edinburgh School of Medicine for Women, and they set up a maternity hospital. And that hospital was here. 219 High Street on the Royal Mile. No way. There's a lot of stairs for somebody who was pregnant to go up. Yeah, it looks like it would have been hard work, doesn't it? There's a lot of stairs there. So this was actually known as the hospice, even though it was a maternity hospital. I'm not sure why. And it was run by an all-female staff, and they served the poorest women in Edinburgh's old town. 
it did accident and general service as well as maternity. It had an operating theatre and eight beds. Uh, I love the fact that they were helping the poorest people. They were very much were. Now, that's not the end of her uh, helping out. She also was involved in the suffrage movement, as in getting votes for women. And she worked with Millicent Fawcett, the leader of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. So famous feminist, the Fawcett Society today is named after her, if you know that. And she became a big figure in the Scottish suffrage movement. And then World War I starts. And this is when Elsie is in her 50s. 50. Exactly. And she established Scottish Women's Hospitals for Foreign Service. This is funded by a lot of the people from the suffrage movement. And uh, it was setting up teams of people to create medical support for the people fighting in the war. She initially was approached the Red Cross to help them out. And Sir George Beaton, the head of the Red Cross in Scotland, said he had nothing to say to a hospital staffed by women. Because? Because <laughs> it was a crazy idea. So she started the project, she opened the fund with £100 of her own money and it took off and they eventually sent 14 medical teams to Belgium, France, Serbia and Russia. She also offered the Royal Army Medical Corps a ready-made medical unit with qualified women staffing it and the war officer said, my good lady, go home and sit still. <laughs> sit still? I know, Not right? just go home. <laughs> sit still, don't even move when you get there. Uh, yeah. The French government were such idiots, fortunately, and they took her up on the offer and she herself led a unit in Serbia where she improved hygiene, she diminished the typhus outbreaks they had. In 1915 she was actually captured and repatriated back to the UK and she went pretty much straight back out to Odessa and she was still working there when unfortunately she became ill with bowel cancer and had to return home and then sadly on the 26th of November 1917 the very day after her arrival in the UK she actually passed away. Wow, that can't have been a very comfortable journey back if she was... I cannot imagine how difficult that was. Well, Winston Churchill said about English and her doctors that they will shine in history. And if you go to a place called Mladenovac in Serbia, there's a memorial fountain um, named after Inglis and erected in her honour. There's another plaque in another street in Edinburgh that we haven't come to, but there's the plaque here on 219 High Street, the site of the maternity hospital where we sort of began her career. Dr. Elsie Inglis. Thank goodness she didn't just go home and just not do it still. <laughs> she kept moving, and for that, we thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ryan, I've brought you here to Hamilton and Inches. Yeah, it's a nice little jewellery shop. Yeah, so the reason we're here is in 2020, there's a whiskey maker called Glen Rhodes, and they released 50 bottles mm -hmm. of their first ever 50-year-old single malt whiskey, which was, in their words, a testament to half a century of passion and craft. Ooh. So the 50th bottle, and there was only 50 bottles made, so they wanted to make it quite special, as you might imagine. So they yeah. partnered up with Hamilton and Inches, which is where we are now. This is a jeweller in the Edinburgh. They are royal warrant holders, apparently, and basically a very fancy jeweller's. Very fancy. I will observe we are outside Hamilton and Inches, <laughs> not inside. <laughs> <laughs> so Hamilton and Inches made a carafe for this 50, these 50 bottles of whiskey using gold from Scotland's only gold mine. No way. This is in the Trossachs National Park, which actually, as a mine, was only approved for, for to be created in October 2018. Okay. So they crafted this beautiful decanter with Scottish gold and Scottish craftsmanship, and they made 50 of these bottles. So I thought, I thought it would be nice to taste a bit, and then I found out that the last bottle sold for £39,000 at auction. Right, so, so you bought two. I forewent the tasting opportunity. But yes, this company has been here in George Street in Edinburgh since 1952, in the 50s. Okay. So uh, we're here to celebrate the 50 at 50 in a shop that's been here since the 50s. Okay, Ryan. That is enough of Bonnie Scotland. We've seen the 50 pound notes, we've met the 50 people and the 50 whiskey. Yep. It's time to move on. I've got my gold chains. I've got my whiskey and I've definitely got my crate of iron brew. <laughs> I'm ready to move on. Uh, right. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. 
Let's go. Let's do it. So, Ryan, we are now here in fine city of Belfast. Uh, Northern Ireland is part of the island of Ireland, but the nation of the United Kingdom, which can be a little bit confusing and it's a very sensitive topic for people in this area. So it's best to take the time and trouble to get these things right. Uh, But yes, Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Ireland is its own country to the south. Northern Ireland is 14,000 square kilometres, making it 38 and a half of them to a France. So it's a pretty small place. Uh, It's got about 2 million people in it. Relatively uh, small in the scheme of things, but quite big in historical terms, you might say. It has a long history of conflict. It is part of the UK and some people believe it should be part of Ireland and there have been uh, a lot of conflicts as a result of the various people's different beliefs as to where it really belongs. But it has been stable for quite a long time since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. It's a place that where once upon a time I might have thought in my youth I might have thought twice about visiting but as an English person particularly. Uh, but nowadays it's just a, another highly visitable town certainly uh, Belfast itself. Uh, now, banknote-wise, you thought having three banks issuing notes in Scotland was a lot. There are four banks in Northern Ireland authorised to issue notes. Well, that's the Bank of Ireland UK, PLC, the Northern Bank Limited, which trades as Danske Bank. So you, you may have guessed that that has, may have been experienced to take over at some point. The NatWest Bank PLC trades as Ulster Bank. AIB Group uh, previously traded as First Trust Bank in Northern Ireland, but they don't do notes anymore. Uh, now, on the subject of Northern Irish currency, the banks in Scotland and in Northern Ireland that issue their own notes, they have to, by law, set aside assets that are worth at least the value of all of the banknotes that they've got in circulation. So if they print a million pounds in banknotes, they have to keep assets available that value a million pounds. Like yeah, it could be gold. But one of the ways they do it is they have backing assets in Bank of England banknotes, because these are not central bank currencies, but the Bank of England is a central bank, yep. so it's government-backed. So banknotes for the Bank of England can be used instead of gold. So this means you want to keep, well, billions of pounds in the cases of these big banks in one place. And so they issue these backing asset notes in really, really high values because there's no point in having a massive room full of £50 notes. So you can get a £1 million banknote. It's called a giant. And they're not in circulation. So they're used by these banks to say, I've got £100 million in or a million pounds in the Bank of England in the form of cash. But it's convenient. It's just one note. But that's not the big one. The the £1 million is the junior one. It's the £100 million banknote you want. And these are known as titans. So, until April 2008, all Bank of Ireland notes featured Queen's University Belfast on the reverse side. But in 2008, a new series of £5, £10 and £20 notes was issued. And in May 2013, the £50 note was added. And all of these notes feature an illustration of the old Bushmills distillery, a whiskey producers. So, I thought, do we want to go to a university or a distillery? I know you're a very academic kind of fellow. I am. I do like to study. But I know that you also like a little whiskey. A tipple or two. Mm. And it does seem more appropriate in the land of whiskey that uh, we ought to go there. Uh, Right. So let's go. All right, Ryan. So here we are. I've brought you to, well, what do you see? Well, I see a couple of old buildings that have old Bushmills distillery written on them. That is correct. We're in the village of Bushmills, home to, unsurprisingly, Bushmills distillery. 
Okay. Uh, we're in County Antrim, which is 57 miles, annoyingly not 50, outside Belfast in the village <laughs> of Bushmills. And the Bushmills distillery draws water from a tributary of the river Bush, hence Bushmills. In 1608, a license was granted to a chap called Sir Thomas Phillips by King James I to distill whiskey. But the company that originally built this distillery was formed in 1784, and they went along creating whiskey, obviously, until the 1850s. And then something happened, interestingly, which links us to our 50s dimension, okay. which is the town Tax on grains was increased, and malted barley is an, a key part of making whiskey. And a lot of other distilleries started to use corn and different grains in order to keep their costs down instead of the barley. But Bushmills didn't. They stuck with the barley, they absorbed the extra price, and as a consequence, they've had this historic link to barley and were uh, developed a reputation for quality over that time. In 1885, these buildings, well not these buildings, the Bushmills buildings were destroyed by fire and they were quickly rebuilt, so quickly in fact, that they've won, Bushmills won the only gold medal for whiskey in Paris in 1889. And in 1890, a steamship owned and operated by the distillery, the SS Bushmills, made its maiden voyage across the Atlantic to deliver Bushmills whiskey to America. Whiskey facts? I'd love a whiskey fact. Irish whiskey. whiskey. Well, yes, so would I. (laughs) It is cold, isn't it? (laughs) Well, Irish whiskey is spelt with an E. Oh, do you know what? Often I don't know whether to spell it with the E or without an E. Yeah, so Scottish whiskey, no E, Irish whiskey with an E. That's fascinating, okay. Uh, and it also doesn't use Not peat. whiskey. Not muck whiskey, indeed. The least uh, popular of the McDonald's range. <laughs> muck whiskey with uh, the, muck flu- the muck whiskey machine is broken, I'm afraid. But no, uh, it also doesn't use peat, so that peaty taste you get in a lot of Highland whiskies you won't find in an Irish whiskey. You might find a whiskey in a peat, though. You might find a whiskey in a peach. You never know. In fact, that's an excellent idea. Let's go find something. Okay. Okay, Ryan, I've brought you to the Queen's Quarter, so named after the Queen's University, which is located here. And we're in uh, the building that is on the £50 note that we discussed. Uh, and this is called the Lanyon Building, which is named after its architect, Sir Charles Lanyon. That's uh, a little bit echoey. Maybe you can hear that. I don't know. It's a beautiful building. It's a really beautiful building. It kind of pops out as you walk up the road towards it as well. It's yeah. something of a surprise to the yeah, visitor. Yeah. <laughs> so this building opened in 1849. And this was the first year of the university. So 1850, the 50s, was the second half of the first academic year for the Queen's University Bowl. Fast. Okay, makes sense. Uh, the university's motto is Pro Tanto Quid Retribuama. Mm, what does that mean? That means for so much, what shall we give back? That's a very good question. It's nice though, isn't it, to, to be looking to give back in your motto rather than we're brilliant. This is an interesting place because actually the university used to have its own seat in Parliament in the House of Commons. Hmm. Uh, in fact, there were eight universities that had MPs and representation in the Commons. That's and fascinating. I had no idea. I had no idea either. Apparently, this was a practice that was only abolished in 1950 itself. Okay. Uh, and in the 50s, the Chancellor of the University was Viscount Allenbrook. He was the most prominent military advisor to Winston Churchill and was pretty much a key player in securing victory in the war. Uh, one of the reasons he's remembered is he kept very good meticulous diaries through the war. And uh, you can read them today. And in them, I, uh, I understand you'll find a man venting his frustrations with the boss. He was not a massive fan of Winston Churchill in his diaries. And he also called the American General Eisenhower a poor strategist. He was a man with opinions, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) He was also the Chancellor of the University. Very good. More recently, the alumni of the University of Belfast are comedian Patrick Kilty, you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. Actors Stephen Rear, Simon Callow. 
Oh, of course. And I'm Liam sure. Neeson learned a particular set of skills here. No way. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's also the home of Nobel Prize winning poet Seamus Heaney. Okay, yeah. A very famous poet who actually was taught, he did his teaching certificate in a teaching school, which became part of the university. So a little more complex, but still a graduate of the university, I would say. Uh, today, there's 25,000 students at QUB, as we call it. Well, it's a big building. There's plenty of room for them, isn't there? Mm. They study 300 different subjects you can get here. 300? 300 subjects. Okay. So, you know, take your pick. Anything mm. you want, you can study it here. Well, if they want to study history, you know, they know where to go. They will, will accept honorary degrees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ryan, we are back in Belfast and we are in the hotel. And you're probably wondering why I selected this particular rather fancy hotel. But our hotel today, Ryan, is the Europa Hotel in Belfast. Okay. And this hotel is celebrating this year its 50th year. So it, it actually had its birthday, as it were, in September 2021. And there was an article in the Irish Times that said, if you're talking about Belfast over the last 50 years, you have to include the Europa. This was the head concierge, Martin Mulholland. It played an integral part in the history of the city. Less appealing is at one point it had the reputation of the most bombed hotel in the world. Uh, it was opened and it became a base basically for international journalists covering the troubles in Northern Ireland and they estimate that 33 times it was targeted for bombing. Throughout the troubles though it never closed um, but it was bought in 1993 by a local hotelier called William Hastings because the international brands were not massively keen on massive investment in the most bomb targeted area in the, area, in the uh, region. So he actually invested £8 million doing the place up and the gamble paid off. Bill Clinton stayed here in 1995 and several times after that. But he, he wrote to the hotel to say the place symbolised the strength of Irish character and was a living reminder of an extraordinary past and the promise of an even greater future. OK, Ryan, I'm afraid it's time to bid farewell to Northern Ireland. Oh, I like Northern Ireland. I know, it was a little rainy, but uh, we yeah. had a good time. Yeah. Uh, the as good news we're is... we're not going somewhere where there's rain. Well, yes. So about that... Yeah. Destination Wales. Oh, it's famous for its rain. Famously rainy Wales. OK. We're going to Cardiff, my friend. Wish I'd brought a brolly. I think we, they probably have them. <laughs> uh, Let's go! Let's do it! <laughs> So here we are, Ryan. Trains, planes and automobiles complete. Yeah, we've been on all of them, haven't we? We've been on everything. We missed a ferry. That's the only thing we didn't get to go on, yeah, I Yeah, we'll do that next time. Nevertheless, here we are in the Wales. We came in through the train into Cardiff Central Station, which itself was opened in 1850. It was just Cardiff at that time. It wasn't Cardiff Central. It was okay. renamed in 1924 and it became Cardiff General. Then I guess the city grew because in 1973 it became Cardiff Central Station. Okay. And that's the train that brought us here. Um, we are in Wales. It's the capital of Wales, Cardiff. Uh, Wales being the sticky out bulge on the left of the UK, if you're looking at the island. It's also the very rainiest part. It has been since we've been here. I am just wringing myself dry as you speak. <laughs> it's uh, 20,000, nearly 21,000 square miles. You need 27 Waleses to make a front. Okay. And uh, I brought you to this pub. This is the Queen's Vault. Uh, it's just on the road down from St. Mary Street, which is the location of what uh, I'm going to tell you to talk a little bit about banks. But before that, a little bit more about Cardiff. Some of the luminaries of Cardiff include Terry Nation, the inventor of the Dalek. Oh, from Doctor Who. From Doctor Who. Oh, Exterminate. Exactly. Uh, Roald Dahl's from Cardiff, apparently. 
Isn't he the one who went exterminate? He, no, he was the one who went, I've invented Willy Wonka. <laughs> and Captain Henry Morgan of more Captain Morgan's rum fame. Oh, the pirate. pirate the pirate was, on the uh, rum bowl. I think we prefer the term privateer. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so in 1955, Cardiff became the capital of Wales, making it Europe's newest and smallest capital. Sites here include Cardiff Castle, which was originally a Roman fort going way back in the day. It became a Norman castle. In Victorian times, it became a sort of medieval theme park. It's a medieval, yes, it's a, kind of like a folly almost. Aqualand. Uh, exactly, only themed with knights and medieval decoration. Okay. Uh, and the walls provide shelter, bomb shelters in World War II. Now it's a shelter for tourists. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the city wasn't always as clean as it is now. It okay. was won twice. The prestigious Lou of the Year Award. Oh, you see, that is clean. But things weren't always so sweet. In 1750, in the 50s, a woman called Christian Lewis drowned falling into the toilet in the King David Inn. What? And in 1951... Well, I can, <laughs> doesn't specify. Or the toilet was large, one of the two. Okay. In 1951, someone called Dr. Parry also died when his toilet collapsed. He fell, quote, into the murk of his own cesspit. No. And the building fell in as well, so he couldn't get out and he died. No, 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 no. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, tell me you're having a bad day without telling me you're having a bad day. <laughs> that, that was a runner-up in lieu of the year awards. Oh. <laughs> yes, this is Cardiff. Now, in the other towns we've been in, we've been looking at banknotes, things on banknotes. But we have a problem with Wales, which is we don't have a Welsh banknote because the Bank of England does the currency for England and Wales. Boom. So we had multiple retail banks distributing notes in Scotland and Northern Ireland, but that doesn't happen in Wales. And I couldn't find a £50 note with anything Welsh on it. So uh, instead, I'm going to tell you a little about a bit of a story about how there was nearly a Bank of Wales. Okay. So I found an article in a, a, a magazine called Rebecca, which was a radical magazine for Wales from the 1970s. Um, that itself took its name from the Rebecca riots that took place in South Wales in the 19th century. But apparently, on 7th of September 1968, in the Queen's Hotel in St Mary Street, which we were just on, a financier named John Ellis and a man called George Thomas, Secretary of State for Wales, had a meeting. This was in uh, the Queen's Hotel. And the, the conversation was about having a Bank of Wales to benefit the people of Wales. Uh, the meeting was uh, not actually ultimately very successful because in 1968 the Board of Trade refused permission for this bank uh, on the grounds that it wasn't owned by an existing bank or there wasn't a company with a strong financial position backing it. This is the beginning of a slightly dubious story because at the same time, George Thomas was also talking to a man called Julian Hodge, and he was one of the members of a council that George Thomas set up called the Welsh Council, uh, and that set up a finance panel, and their, their task was to inquire into the availability of public and private capital in Wales for development purposes. Right. And what that meant was, shall we set up a bank? Yeah. <laughs> so the finance, the finance panel uh, created a report, which it presented on the 21st of April 1969. And this, when you looked at it, became very obvious that they wanted to create a Bank of Wales very much under the control of Julian Hodge. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things it was supposed to do is explain why Wales needed a bank. Uh, one local director of a bank said he knew of no case in Wales where money had been refused for industrial development. Another general manager of the Industrial Commercial Finance Corporation suggested the problem was not so much a shortage of finance as a relative lack of demand, but there was one person who was sure we needed this. He supplied confidential evidence of a number of cases where firms unable to raise credit from normal sources had approached his firm. 
That was Julian Hodge. Yes, of course it was, yeah. <laughs> so the panel approved the founding of the Bank of Wales in 1971, but it was never a central bank. It was a private investment bank that was supposed to provide commercial banking for small, small and medium businesses. Okay. Um, still supposed to be for the good of Wales. They originally wanted the, bank to, the company to be called the Bank of Wales, but then the Bank of England and the Registrar of Companies both said, no, that makes it sound a lot like a central bank. It's not the Bank of Wales. So they came to a compromise and it became the Commercial Bank of Wales. Uh, in Welsh, that's Bank Masnachol Cymru. Uh, but it was actually officially renamed the Bank of Wales in December 1986. Now, the difference between this bank and what John Ellis in that original meeting had been suggested was that John Ellis's proposal included a board of trustees drawn from trade unions, Welsh Farmers Union, industry and the university to make the Bank of Wales sure that it belongs to the people of Wales. So instead, <laughs> they got a bank that very much belongs to Sir Julian Hodge. <laughs> yeah, the Julian Hodge Bank. They should have just called it that. Well, funny you should say that. Private Eye knew Sir Julian Hodge as the usurer of the valleys. Uh, and the Bank of Wales was eventually taken over. It was created. It was uh, relatively successful. It was taken over by the Bank of Scotland in 1986. But it ceased trading under its Welsh brand in 2002. But don't worry, Ryan, because you can still bank in Hodge Bank. Oh, really? Set up in 1987 as Julian Hodge Bank, based in Cardiff. But the Bank of Wales, although it existed, was never a central bank, it never issued banknotes, so there was never a £50 note from the Welsh. Sorry Wales. But that doesn't mean we can't toast the HHE community, and we are in a pub. So we have uh, two pints of a local brew. This is Double Dragon, which is recommended to us by the friendly Welsh farming. Dragon being the, the flag. On the flag, the excellent Welsh flag, which I'm a big fan of. I'd say cheers in Welsh, but I can't remember what it was. No, I can't either. Back, back in the HHE studio, Ryan. How are you feeling? Weary? Oh, I'm travel weary, Pete. It was a long way to go, wasn't it? It really was. In fact, we've been to four nations. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a that's a big a big trip for us. And given that we barely leave the studio and we kind of emerge <laughs> blinking into the sunshine on day one, uh, but we made it. I had a thoubly enjoyable time. We've met Alan Turing, Flora Stevenson, Elsie Inglis, all from the Fifty Pound Notes. We've been to Queen's University, Belfast, and the Bushmills Distillery, also from the Fifty Pound Note. We've learned stories from the fifties on things themed 50 and all in celebration of our 50th episode and the final thing ryan i would like to give to you is mm. is it uh, a 50 pound note no <laughs> i took a 50 pound note and i used some of that 50 pound note uh, <laughs> yeah. if you'd like to have a little look in the fridge oh. a little something for you i'm going to have a celebration <gasps> it is a bottle of History Happened Everywhere branded yeah. champagne. When you say branded, do you mean you've just taken a, a marker pen to a post-it note and written the words History Happened Everywhere champagne, as in S-H-A-M? <laughs> that, that's what's happened. Oh, I'm going to open it. I think you should. All right. All right, here we go. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Here's to us and to everyone who's listened in. To all our lovely listeners. Hopefully more. <laughs> and to your deposit <laughs> for wow. fixing that new hole in the ceiling. <laughs> well, raise a glass, and here's to you, our listeners, and to another 50 episodes of History Happened Everywhere. Cheers. Okay, all right. Well, I'll wheel the layer out then, shall I? Because it's my turn. Oh, yes. Okay, uh, right, it's out. It's, uh, shall I turn it on? Turn it on. Okay. Warm it up. Here we go. 
Your country is Dominica. 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 Oh, okay. Your time period yeah. is 1764 to 1848 CE. Okay, so 80 odd years. That's a solid period. Something must have happened. Sure. And your subject is mm-hmm. animal. 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 Oh, that's exciting. That's quite broad. You can, yeah, I think you can conjure something up with that. Well, I'm looking forward to some animal attractions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we're going to be back very soon with episode 51. But in the meantime, that's the show for this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening and for listening to the past 49 episodes and this one indeed. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch about anything that we've talked about on this show uh, or to complain about the sound quality, uh, you can can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Subject line, really hate your sound. (laughs) <laughs> We'd love to hear from you, uh, but we know about the sound. <laughs> and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely do that is rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations really push us out to the wider world, and we'd really appreciate that. That's right. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitters, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe, you're going to get an alert every time we post one of our little one-minute animated bites. We're going to be back again soon with... The verdict. But until then, a huge thank you to the lovely Mr. Peter Goddard. Thank you for coming on a voyage of discovery with me, Ryan. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You have, for 50 occasions, been listening to... History happened everywhere. Travelling on the tracks When you're here with a beer And a bag of snacks Cheese Doritos, Monster Muncher The big tube of Pringles Bombay Mix and Pocky Stick The tongue, it really tingles Package crinkle As we work through our picnic Keep on eating Then we start to feel green Travelling really quick And you're starting to feel Really travel sick All vibrating, nauseating Sweat stand out on my brow I regret the things we ate And want the trip to end now Time goes slowly When you're travelling on the train And your stomach is churning In a lot of pain The end.